Welcome everyone. I'm Susan Shatter, the president of the National Academy. Uh, probably a lot of you want to know what the National Academy is, so I'll tell you briefly. Founded in 1825 by Artists for Artists, the National Academy of Design consists of an honorary association of professional artists, a museum, and a school of fine arts. Your museum is open until 6.45 on review panel evenings, and so next time, come early and please see our shows. Currently up is the abstract Impulse, curated by Marshall Price, our contemporary curator, abstract paintings from the collection, and then landscapes of Asher B. Durand and his pals. Tonight is the fourth season of the review panel, and it is a collaboration between the National Academy of Design and David Cohn. Funding for the review panel is provided by the Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation, the Daedalus Foundation, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and the New York State Council on the Arts. I also want to thank our sound engineer, Graeme White, who records each panel, and Christine Widmer, our director of educational programs. And now, on to David Cohn. David Cohn is art critic and contributing editor at the New York Sun. He is also editor and publisher of artcritical.com and the gallery director at the New York Studio School. David will introduce the panelists. Let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you very much, and thank you, Susan Shatter and Executive Director Annette Blaugrand and all the wonderful staff, especially Christine Widmer, who makes, makes it possible for this, this series to work. And thank you for being such a wonderful audience. It's great to see a full house to start this new season. Um, let me uh, introduce you to our panel this evening, a very distinguished one, which includes two uh, recidivists, um, critics who have in fact appeared before on the review panel and so distinguished themselves that we couldn't resist getting them back. Um, in alphabetical order, and it's amusing to start an alphabetical lineup of people starting in the letter P, <laughs> but Nancy Prinsenthal is a senior editor at Art in America magazine, uh, a doyen of uh, contemporary art criticism in this country. Um, she is the co-author of the newly published uh, book, After the Revolution, 12 Women Who Changed Current, uh, Contemporary Art, uh, which is on bookshelves now. Who is the publisher? Prestel. Prestel is the publisher. Wonderful. Um, Gregory Volk. Or folk, I don't know. Let's go for Volk, yes. <laughs> Gregory Volk is uh, a professor um, of art, history, uh, and contemporary art at Virginia Commonwealth University and a regular uh, contributor to Art in America, where perhaps his copy is subjected to the scrutiny of Nancy <laughs> Prinsenthal. <laughs> so he will certainly be not spitting any infinitives this evening. And... Um, Gregory, we, all, we, we know from his writings in Art in America, most recently, for instance, uh, an in-depth in uh, review of uh, 
Sculpture Project 07 at Munster, in Munster, Germany. And John Zinser is a prolific writer for many different publications and uh, is uh, a, a teacher as well. He um, teaches a course entitled Learning from Current Exhibitions at the New School, uh, in which his students are sent around to see what's up and then forced to review it, which I think uh, makes him uh, rather uniquely qualified to be here at uh, the review panel where we too try to learn from current exhibitions. So welcome to this distinguished panel. And let me just, um, let me just ask, who is new to the review panel? Who has not been to a panel before? Well, that's a very healthy, nice sign. It means um, it means half the audience didn't come back again. <laughs> <laughs> but but you'll judge for yourself whether they were right or wrong not to do so. It's lovely to see new faces, and for, for your benefit, and just as a refresher, because it's been some months since we were here last. Uh, let me just tell you what the uh, the format is. Uh, we have. Um, a nice little PowerPoint presentation of the shows we're looking at. Um, but uh, hopefully we don't rely on dingy slides to uh, uh, tell us what the art looks like. And uh, another deed poll, if you wouldn't mind indulging me. Tell me, um, and don't be shy if you didn't, but tell me if you saw two or more of the exhibitions that we're going to be discussing. Ah. Gosh, that's probably the same average as the panel. So that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Excellent. Um, so the format is that, that you will have had the chance and you know in advance because either you've got the email or a flyer or you've seen an ad or you can go to artcritical.com and click on review panel it'll tell you the lineup of the next evening you'll know which four or five shows we've been to see and we will be talking about um, so, and incidentally when you're at artcritical.com you can also hear past um, uh, review panels they're expertly recorded for us by Graham White, and um, you can click and listen to them streamed. Soon we're going to um, be converting the technology so you can download them as iPods and walk around all day long listening to the review panel. <laughs> but here this evening, what we do is we look at some slides for each show and then have a little discussion between ourselves. And at a couple of junctures in the evening, uh, the panel takes a little break to allow the audience to let off steam and share with us their opinions and perhaps probe us with questions. Uh, so um, um, let me also, just one last piece of housekeeping. It would be more dignified to do this at the end, but one always gets so euphoric and excited when an evening of the review panel has ended that you forget <laughs> to do so. Let me, let me tell you to mark in your diaries uh, Friday, November 12th, 9th, Friday, November 9th, <laughs> You may have heard a hint of tentativeness in that uh, Friday, November 9th, where uh, the confirmed panelists will be Arthur C. Danto, Ale uh, Vincent Katz, and Linda Yablonski. So, our first show, I think, we'll look at Rudolf Stingel, who was Stingel, who's uh, the Italian artist, despite his Germanic name, who was uh, occupying a floor at the Whitney Museum. So, Gregory, what do we make of Rudolf Stingel? Is, uh, in my opinion, this is 
a kind of rare and wonderful example of a major museum doing something quite, um, once again, unusual and spectacular. I think a lot of people did not know very much about Rudolf Stingel. I'm, I've, from time to time, I've had some contact um, with his work, but by no means have I made it a real scholarship of it. And this is really doing service to an, an excellent and, and, and interesting and thoughtful and intelligent artist who's just doing uh, so many things, so many convincing and radical variations on the basic idea of what is a painting. I think that there's, there's so like a freedom-seeking uh, quality of, of the whole show, and I think that this show is going to bring a, a, kind, a, a very interesting and perhaps even major painter of his era to a much wider audience. And getting off the fourth floor elevator in this foil room was like the show-stopping uh, moment, psyche rearranging and like politically challenging, I mean really challenging how you behave and think in a museum, so like all thumbs up for me. I too was surprised actually to see Stingle occupying a floor at the Whitney in uh, a prestigious museum. Uh, not a not a retrospective necessarily, but uh, it's really focused on the last ten years or so. But refreshing to see uh, such treatment to an artist who is not a household name. I have seen one of his shows of Paula Cooper with that uh, painting based on Paula as a younger woman. Um, and was rather surprised. Nancy, were you surprised to see the Whitney giving Stingle this treatment? And do you think there's more in store for artists of not equally not as well known as him? That's a good question. Um, I actually have a lot of faith in, in what the Whitney is up to these days, and I think they've um, they've made some uh, they've they've had sort of a record over the past few years of of having surprising and strong shows. Um, and like Gregory, I, I actually was not that familiar with Stingle's work before I saw it um, in Chicago. I had the, the very unusual for a working art critic experience of being able to see this show in two different places. I um, saw it in Chicago where it originated before it came here to New York. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was this feeling of sort of, you know, this rousing, traveling, um, sort of traveling extravaganza. Um, and... Uh, one of the things that struck me about the show having having had that experience is that an awful lot depends on how it's installed, um, not in terms of, you know, the sort of routine business of, of how paintings are hung, but that the sequence of works um, matters in the same way that dealing a, a hand of cards matters. And I think that sort of dealing a hand of cards metaphor works for Stingle on a number of different levels. I think there's something very guarded about his work. Uh, you know, even though I, I, I did write about this work, I have really deeply ambivalent feelings about it, um, which doesn't mean that they're not powerful. I think that his work is a terrific diagnostic for the sort of lay of the land in the contemporary art world right now. I think it operates in this absolute freefall between true belief, you know, in the sense of what paintings' possibilities are and, and absolute cynicism. I don't, I don't think he hits bottom. I think, you know, he, he stays suspended in midair and he keeps us there too. So for me, that was one of the most um, potent parts of the experience was that sort of suspension. Yeah, John, we get really... Uh, 
within 10 years of work, quite a, a spread, don't we, of uh, forms and uh, genres from uh, very kind of arte povera sort of explorations of styrofoam to hyper-realist self-portraits to uh, uh, paintings of uh, wallpaper in, a, in an installation and the graffiti. Um, how did you, did you, taking up uh, Nancy's uh, dichotomy there between sincerity and cynicism, um, how did you respond to the diversity of genre and medium in this show? Well, I think that uh, Stingle is known as a, a showman and a provocateur, and I think that people kind of expected that from his carpeting practice. He famously carpeted grand, part of Grand Central Station, Vanderbilt Hall. And um, I think this idea of the drama of the large elevator at the Whitney doors opening into this Warhol factory-like silver room, for me, it, it began an orchestration of a sequence of art historical allusions and we're so used to seeing artists who appropriate directly or quote directly, but everything was so sly in its, in its use. You move from the Warholian, then to the silver paintings, which quote early Marden and Warhol in a kind of deft way. And later on, when I was looking at the styrofoam works, I started to think about Italian artists, you know, uh, Burry and Manzoni and Fontana, and I, I never really thought of Stingle as an Italian artist. You introduced him as one, but I've always thought of him as a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And then the late uh, realist portraits I had always thought were kind of a, a strange kind of party trick, but the more I looked at them, the more they started to look like uh, Manet paintings, and I thought of, you know, the death of Marat, and I thought of... Uh, Mantegna's Dead Christ, you know, I, I suddenly saw all these marvelous allusions that were very open-ended without being uh, directly citational or quotational. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, how seeing something that you've experienced downtown as sheer provocation, when you see uptown in a swank museum, it begins to feel more... It begins to, it begins to have this instant, instant dose of gravitas. Uh, it, it certainly, if, you, if, if David and Manet come to mind and seeing the painting, that would be proof that that worked um, in your case. I, I, I should say that um, I found things to admire and enjoy in this show, um, but it seemed to me that um, he's treading on a very familiar ground in, in most of what he's doing, um, which isn't necessarily in, inherently a a bad thing to do. I, I, I felt the radicalism of his work had to do with its diversity rather than the uh, specifics of what he's doing in individual works because one is so familiar with hyper-photorealism, with arte povera explorations of uh, impoverished and uh, improbable materials, uh, with kind of tongue-in-cheek abstraction that could nonetheless be quite moving. I mean, one could cite for each of those categories half a dozen or so artists. Um, uh, um, Gregory, am I missing something? Is he yes. <laughs> it, it, it's, I think, like, for example, if you just think of the, what you call, what did you say, the hyper-realism of, I think that, while I don't know the artist, I think that that's like one element, but probably the more, uh, another interesting thing is that the photographs are done by Sam Samore, who's like a really very interesting artist, and I think that there's like a complete like dialogue between Stingle and some more that's like blending and, and melding photography and painting in a in a in like a new way. I mean it's not often that the subject of a photograph helps to arrange the photograph done by the famous photographer and then brings it back into painting 
later. And I also think that uh, they're actually, there's a, whether it's staged or not, I think that one can make maybe too much of this provocateur aspect. I think that there is like a real sadness that's palpable uh, in, 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 in those images. And, and at the same time, you, you're aware that he's staging it. So it's a tricky thing, I would say, in this sense. Why, Nancy or John, do, do, you, do you sense with John, with Gregory, that his having staged the photograph adds a specific layer of significance? Because to me that would seem a little anecdotal and not central to the experience, the image. Well, I, th I think it, it matters just to the extent that there's always a, a degree of distancing that's going on between the, um, the image that you see and the, the degree of his commitment to its production. Um, so, for instance, with those gorgeous paintings, the abstract paintings, he published a, a sort of recipe manual in the late 80s, 89, for how you could go ahead and execute those paintings yourself in mm -hmm. you know, your own studio or living room. You take an electric mixer and you whip up the paint and then you, know, you lay mm -hmm. gauze, you paint it on the surface, mm -hmm. you lay gauze down, you pull it off. So I think providing Sam's name and the title and making it clear that he is jointly involved in producing this image is part of the point. Um, and keys into um, his invitation to the audience, for instance, to, um, in that sort of set piece opening, um, participate in the work by putting your mark there and gouging into the surface of that tin foil. Um, but there's always a, you know, a degree of remove, even from the invitation to the audience. He's not, you know, wholeheartedly committed to the idea of inviting audience participation. You're meant to feel that it's an act of vandalism. You're meant to celebrate that. You're meant to be a little embarrassed at yourself for your, you know, obviously aggressive instincts. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that rather than um, provocation exactly, I think it's just this, you know, this business of sort of putting a test out there for the audience mm -hmm. and then stepping back and, and seeing um, exactly how the audience um, performs on the test. The, the, um, there's a comparison that's made in the catalog in um, Francesco Bonami's essay, he was the curator, between Stingel and, and Gerhard Richter. And mm -hmm. I think it's that yeah. position that, you know, I can do absolutely anything and make it look so good you wouldn't believe that I wouldn't just, you know, sit back, take credit, and, you know, wait for you to applaud. But there is a kind of canniness and I think mm. also a kind of melancholy that, that Gregory is talking about that's part of that performance. Yes, Gerhard Richter, I think, is the name that can't be ignored in relation to to this artist because it's so much um, what I call that, what I call a kind of uh, neo-conceptual hedging of bets that on the one hand you make sure that at every stage um, it's, it's clever and it's um, potentially or actually a deconstruction of painting. Um, but at the same time, you produce things that are kind of sumptuous and enjoyable and therefore put the audience, the viewer, in a slightly in an intentionally sort of awkward spot of, of enjoying something but being told not to enjoy it too much, as it were. <laughs> or or it rather, rather it sort of puts the artist in a, in a convenient spot of saying, I, I want to play with materials, I want to uh, elicit 
um, aesthetic sensations from you. But don't get worried. I'm, I'm, I'm not a mere sensualist. I'm not a traditionalist. I'm clever because I'm, I'm deconstructing painting. Well, I mean, if you grow up in northern Italy, if your name is Stingel, if you're from Zutirol, uh, there's a lot of mountains there and a lot of snow, and you might walk around there a lot. And if you're an expatriate, you might not even not be there that much. You have, this might trigger something very intense in your psyche and in your soul. In this show, there's a wonderful painting on white styrofoam in which he walks on the styrofoam. He applied, I guess, paint thinner to his feet. It melts uh, the styrofoam. And basically, what you get is like presto uh, of far long, long ago snowfield with footprints in. I think it's like a, a, an amazing uh, moment in the show that, that I couldn't, I wouldn't want to pin down and say, this, that means you know, this. But it, it, it's, uh, uh, it's so deeply evocative of, of so many things. Mm -hmm. And then I, I think that's one of the powers of that particular work. I, th I think the show is really strong on mood, too. Where, mm -hmm. and, and that's something you might not get with Richter so much, where, where you really come away with this strong imprint of mood. Another thing is people say, you know, this is an artist who's a critic's darling. You know, this is, this is conceptual work and so forth. But when I was there, the general public was having a great time looking at this show. I saw all different levels of art audience there, and people really responding to the work just for sheer visual qualities. And I found that amazing for an artist who's not you know, well-known, who's considered to be sort of a darling of the elite. I thought that it was a highly successful show on those terms. Well, I found plenty to enjoy at a, at a visual level, and my colleagues here found a lot to chew on on the, <laughs> the conceptual. So I think the consensus has to be that that was a pretty successful show. And kudos to the Whitney for um, having the courage to take a show of somebody who's not um, going to be a blockbuster, um, gate-pleasing uh, artist. But <laughs> it's going to nonetheless stir things up a bit. Our next show to look at is uh, certainly by Downtown Provocateur. Uh, I think I can say that without uh, in any antagonism. Uh, and this is an installation from Raymond Pettibon's. Uh, this is an installation view of Raymond Pettibon's. Here's your irony back. The big picture, 2007, at the David Zwerner Gallery. Nancy. Raymond Pettibon, a poor man's prince. <laughs> is that the way I have to begin? No. Um, poor man's prince. As you as you like. I'm just being a. Like Raymond, it's you know it, it's funny you should begin this way because I I just reread an article that um, Michael Kimmelman wrote about which maybe some of you in the audience have read. It was a New York Times Magazine article about Pettibone, and I, I found it sort of appalling because it was all about you know this, this sort of personal angle and the this disorganized household that he grew up in or something, which, you know, that, that is one way to, you know, that, that Pettibone's work is talked about is in relationship to the sort of, you know, very productive chaos and more particularly the productive chaos of the punk rock scene in California. And he famously began by, you know, making fanzines and record covers and CD covers and so on. Um, I, I thought this show was, you know, a complete sort of um, revelation breakthrough for me in relationship to his work, which um, for the most part, you know, he's extremely prolific. Um, the work is these very urgently executed drawings with text. Um, 
And until this point, it sort of veered between um, some high cultural references and awful lot of sort of post-adolescent stuff, and, you know, including a range of comic book references, rock and roll references, misbehavior references, surfer stuff. And with this show, I think what he's done is take a very clear stand, finally, about the place of irony in contemporary art. And I think what he's saying is irony is, you know, is not something we can think about if we have been able to for the past who knows how long as a tool of you know, high cultural critique. Irony you know, is the coin of the realm. Irony is what the Bush administration has been running on for seven years. It's in every action that they take. Take a look, folks. Um, these are their words. So although it's still not you know, just straight ahead prose and the, um, there's no easy relationship between the images and the, and the text, an awful lot of this work, and it's um, profusely installed as always, is very directly related to our involvement in Iraq, to what we're doing all over the world. Not that all of it is direct, you know, Israel is moral, Israel is mortal. You know, he's going places that he can't assume a uniform reaction from his audience, which is, you know, always a commendable thing to do. Mm. But, you know, that's it's the, it's the second to show this year in which uh, <laughs> Israel's legitimacy has been questioned at the David Werner Gallery. We had uh, uh, Francis Alice uh, yeah. earlier in the year. I, I, I hope Mr. Zwerner isn't on the Mossad list, but uh, well, <laughs> it's... Um, uh, what, do we, what do you make of uh, the, the politics of this, uh, John? Do you think, do you think uh, this is an astute uh, political... You, what, what, is, what role is the politics really playing in, well, in this I, show? For me, it, it, this, here's your irony back. I mean, we, we, it moves the, the focus of contemporary art you know, away from irony. It says, what happens if, if you know, the artist is, is earnest in his political views? But for so long, the power of Pettibone has been that the elusiveness of who is the narrator in his texts. And you always get the sense of he's channeling from high and low sources, popular culture, he's quoting people. You never think it's him necessarily, and that's part of the power of his work. And when you see it uptown at Zwerner and Worth, you think here's a master of uh, genre illustration that's been able to bring it into another realm Downtown in this show, it seems so kind of flat-footed in its in its you know, uh, dogmatic politics, and you know, for me, it, it it smacks of the worst of social realism, where you know you're being told something that you already know, and it doesn't have the kind of elusive slipperiness that I've seen and enjoyed mm. in Pettibone before. Mm. Gregory, we also saw his work, didn't we, in Venice uh, at uh, in the Italian Pavilion. Um, Taking a similar kind of uh, political stance, did you do you do you go along with John as far as it's uh... no? Uh, but I also uh, but I also <laughs> would question this like political stance. I mean, the power of this show for me. I mean, first of all, it's like the relation between image and language. He he's like a master of this. But the power of it is it's like he's really enraged. You know, it's like it, this is really serious for him. It's not about a political stance. You get the, you, I get the sense that this artist is so deeply enraged with what's going on uh, in wartime, this war, this controversial war, and all the other things attendant upon that, and that he's made like a direct, extravagant, 
raid uh, into the best of his abilities on that whole condition. And I frankly applaud it all together, uh, especially in a time, like for example, so we've been to, uh, or I've been to some of those big shows, you know, Venice, Documenta, uh, Münster and whatnot, and it's almost become like a standard thing that a certain number of artists will be making these works that are mm. full of political commentary on some this or that, uh, the, the, some important issue, but with Pettibone, it's so direct and it's so enraged and he's digesting uh, so much of what's gone on in, in um, the last seven years, and I find his, like, absolute blazing straightforward anger entirely convincing and welcome well many of us are, are blazing with anger at the bush administration and that that's it, he's not really going to be um uh he's not taking a stance that's going to offend that many visitors to a downtown art gallery one could perhaps argue um what is it that you're really taking positively from the show is it uh Bravo! You share my political views, and uh, I'm too really no. angry. Or, or is it how? Tell, 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 tell us in the kind of aesthetic terms how it's really well, how, be, the, how because, the politics uh, is energizing uh, the work. Because if, I mean, once again, I you know I could be wrong about things, but he he he's doing this. But then there's so many other cultural codes that are going on, as John mentioned. You know, like subcultures and this kind, this kind of stuff. But some of the other things that are particularly powerful for me, throughout the show, there are biblical cadences. You can just find them in little moments. Biblical allusions, biblical cadences of language. He happens to know how important the language of the Bible is in American culture. Throughout the show, you'll find references to baseball, okay? Mm -hmm. He knows his baseball. He really does. There's like a great little moment when the earth is wobbling, like somebody pitched it. The earth is wobbling. Next to it are the words Hoyt Wilhelm, okay? You know, I mean, I don't know how many people are going to know about Hoyt Wilhelm, a great relief pitcher who pitched for many different teams from the late 50s to the uh, early 70s and famous for the knuckleball. So, that, so he just knows all these things. He's using this language of America, baseball, religiosity, and various other, uh, various other things, and then just charging them, turning them around and charging them with his kind of content, and that's something I love. I think he cares deeply about America, and he's like deeply disturbed about um, right now. But Nancy, uh, to what extent should we, in coming to terms with work, uh, care whether he cares about America? <laughs> I mean, and, and cares about uh, and, and is and is genuinely angry. I mean, w would the work be any lesser if if he? Uh, cared more about Switzerland and was only half angry. I mean, it, it seems that there's a little bit of a affective fallacy in, in Gregory's take on it. Would, would you share that view or his view? I do, sh I do share that fallacy wholeheartedly. Um, you know, art can do a lot of things, and, I, and there will always be debate about whether one of the things it can do at all is... Um, bring any sharpness of focus or any um, enhanced passion to the political debate in this country. David Werner's gallery happens to be a really prominent, expensive piece of real estate right now. He could hardly be in a more visible place. And I think simply occupying that, um, that gallery with this particular body of work, um, which for a lot of viewers, for me anyway, was not um, what was expected, I think is very potent. Um, 
I think that, you know, the beginning of the gallery season, for instance, is a time of sort of stock taking, temperature taking, what, you know, what's going on out there, and just taking responsibility for the, um, for some of the language that's part of the political cultural debate in this country is, is to be, you know, applauded, I applaud. It moved me. I was moved visually. I, I, I liked the, the, the energy of it on a purely visual level. Um, more particularly the individual uh, piece, uh, pages than, than the installation uh, at large. Um, but uh, I just was left very uh, cool about the, the posture, what I took to be the posturing. I, the degree of earnestness or not is uh, rather inconsequential because, as I say, it, it, it's, it's a set of uh, views and values that uh, most of his audience... Uh, goes along with to some considerable extent. Um, I'm not sure that's true. It's certainly not true of the collector base. So, you know, to... Um, I mean, it may be true of... Well, funnily enough, my view on the collector base was that um, uh, if, if they can have Israel is more mortal slash moral uh, emblazoned there, that's... Uh, I looked at that and thought, mm, yes, there's, the collector base has expanded now. The, uh, the, the new money from uh, Asia and Russia is taking hold. If uh, you can... You can Play games with sort of anti-Zionist slogans and and succeed with it in, a, in a, at the David Werner Gallery. Perhaps that's just a cynical view of mine. You think that Raymond Pettibon really cares about these questions? You think he's really caring about what the collector base is? No, but I think David Werner does. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that David Werner does. But the issue is uh, Pettibon. I doubt very much that he cares about this. I don't think that it makes any difference to him if that show is at uh, David Sferner or if it were in, you know, a little coffee shop in L.A. like back in the day when he, mm. when, he, when he used to show. He has a very urgent message. And it's not just the message, it's the dialogue between message and images. So what's the actual, how do I decode the message uh, in the Israel's moral mortal bit? He has an urgent message, but we don't know what the message is. A, then, then, that's that's then not the, the the majority of that show. By far, the majority of that show has to do with war in Iraq. By far. But the slogan actually takes up a huge amount of space yeah. and has an incredible impact. John, were you able to decode it in a specific way? No, I and I thought the same thing you did about it's the second anti-Zionist show that David Werner has mounted, which I found very strange. But I don't think there's any market risk to showing Pettibone at David's Werner Gallery, no matter what the political content is. He's a darling of the art market. And I think he's very aware of who he is and where he is. I, I disagree with Gregory about that. I think context says a lot. I think artists are aware of what context they're going into. Um, and as far as the subject of, of war, you know, I, the things I liked most in the show quoted from, you know, 1940s-era Yank and Milton Caniff, and I liked the open question of what does war mean in relation to American shared experience. So I felt that the more literal uh, political cartoon-like pieces were the less successful ones. And I thought to be drawn into this larger dialogue of what is the culture of war in America and how has it been realized through illustrational and, and popular conventional traditions was very interesting. But the slogans on the wall, I just thought it was, it was overbearing and unnecessary, and I didn't know what it meant. Well, that's, uh, I think we've got... We've got an interesting split on this one, and we should move on and see what we make of the next show. Actually, no, let's take a little break at this stage <laughs> as the lights are on. We've got two shows here. 
very different in character. Um, and uh, I'd like to see what, or hear what, uh, what the audience made of it. And um, do, we've got a roving mic. Please, please wait for it. Because, as you know, we record these sessions. It's not just a question of us hearing it, but the World Wide Web needs to hear it too. So wait for the mic. Um, bear in mind uh, what an audience you have. And share with us your views. Uh, have I intimidated you all into saying nothing? Uh, uh, Stingle and Pettibon. Uh, or did we? Uh, yes, <laughs> lady. Uh, yes, please. Good, good point. I mean, inherently it needn't be. It's, it's perhaps just in the context of a show which has this unabashedly uh, left stance on the war in Iraq and the Bush administration that, that if it was on its own in a different context, it could indeed be a sort of one-in statement that I think could be... I mean, I don't think it's the most um, linguistically profound pun on the words moral and mortal that uh, the, the language can, uh, affords necessarily. Uh, but uh, you're right, it could have that ambiguity. I, I think we all agreed on the ambiguity because none of us knew what it meant. But um, uh, I think some of us questioned where it might be coming from because of where it is. Well, it seemed to be written in kind of an accusatory style on the wall in the same way you might see something written in the streets. And there was another large painted image in the show that had an Israeli flag draped over what was either a brick or a coffin. Um, again, ambiguous, but at the same time, because the tone of the whole show seemed to be accusatory, um, it seemed to have some kind of critique inherent to it. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that he was referring to what's a popular concept, the Israeli-U.S. war machine. And since I, I don't have direct information about that, but I've seen documentaries. Commentary on how the, the 
questions should there be a Jewish state, which makes it more likely. Right. Okay. I think we may have. Thank you for that great comment. But let's. If you got. If anyone's got any comments on the general artistic nature of, of Pettibon's show, or else uh, on on Stingle's show, then do share them with us. Uh, enough. No one. What? Well, the the lady thinks that if it has to do with politics, what does it have to do with art? And I think most of us on the panel would say that these categories can't quite be so neatly uh, uh, distinguished from one another as to um, be mutually exclusive. Uh, is that fair for all of us? Um, anybody got anything to say on Rudolf Stingle? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I thought that the show wasn't as flat-footed as you suggested because in the context of other political shows out there, one of Leo Cooney, it felt really kind of like a relief that you could find a bit of humor and darkness and still see his personality coming through those individual works. So I think it wasn't, I don't think it was flat-footed. I think there was too much of him involved in too many of the pieces. And I think the, the wall texts were, uh, were different. They were disjointed from the actual works. Okay, a last comment from anybody on either show? Yes, uh, lady here. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, bear in mind, everybody, that the show closes this weekend. So if you haven't seen it, hot foot down to the Whitney. Anyway, let's dim the lights and move on to our next show, which is Julie Heffernan at the PPOW Gallery. Now, I know it's John's turn to be asked a question, and yet I'm afraid I'm going to ask him to hold back because I'm dying to ask Nancy whether... whether, uh, Julie Heffernan is an, art, is an artist who has uh, changed the world. That's, that's the title of your, ex- uh, your, your recent book is After the Revolution, 12 Women Who Changed Contemporary Art or Current Art. Is Julie Heffernan changing current art? turn. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think any artist who, you know whose, whose work is worth looking at is changing contemporary art one way or another. Um, and I think you're asking that as a way of asking whether or not it can be productive to rely so heavily on historical precedent, as um, Julie Heffernan is obviously doing. And I, you know, just as a way of sort of opening this discussion, um, which is as un, unclosable as whether or not politics belongs in contemporary art. Um, what I want to say about um, her painting is that I think she uses historical reference as a way of reaching, a, in a, as a way of um, putting history on the plane of actual emotional experience. And that the work is very, obviously it's all self-portrait, it's very personally expressive. Um, which is one way to distinguish her, for instance, since um, this is something that comes up in some of the recent criticism about her work, one way to distinguish her, at least in my mind, between someone like John Curran, um, who 
or any one of a number of artists, you can put Odd Nerdrum here too, I guess, who use um, historical precedent as a conceptual maneuver. And I think for her, um, and she makes this very explicit by naming all of the work self-portrait, um, the historical reference is a way of um, putting our experience in a um, historical continuum. Hmm. The, the fact that they are self-portraits, John, um, do, you, do you take them as self-portraits? Are, are they usefully described as self-portraits? Uh, what, does, what, does it, what does it mean to have every one of your paintings as, as hers are and show after show be titled self-portrait and feature this idealized female in, at its center? I think any artist could name all of their artwork self-portrait. That's what artists do. So for me, it's not particularly critical as a notion. And in fact, before I read this recent review of the show, I didn't realize that's what they were all titled. And um, it doesn't really move me um, that she is this protagonist of these paintings. They seem very formulaic and um, eager to please and um, full of little pleasures for... um, you know, high-end consumers, but I don't really see what's critical about these paintings. Gosh. Um, (laughs) Gregory, can you... It seems to me, Gregory, that uh, uh, these are critical paintings. Um, I think it's interesting to see these after after looking at and thinking about Rudolf Stingel, because... um, with a very different sensibility mm-hmm. and, and a notion of finesse or scale in, in every sense, not just the physical size of the object, but mm-hmm. the, the, the labor intensity or the consideration or the uh, many different aspects of the scale. It couldn't be more different to, to look at a, a Heffernan and a, a Stingle. And yet um, it seems that they're both in a way um, concerned with some, something quite rudimentary about painting. Um, did you, did, what did you make of uh, her work? Did you, did you feel she was uh, tackling uh, basic structural issues of painting, or did you mm. feel like, John, that they're uh, crowd-pleasers? I would say, well, more like um, John. I don't know about crowd-pleasers, but it just for me, I, I think that she's spectacularly talented. I mean, she has such a touch. I mean, they're so good. They're so voluptuous. It's all interesting with the art historical references. And, and for me, just speaking very personally, it just seems to be operating in a real niche, like total, like a real, like small niche in terms of art or art making. And it does seem rather pleasant uh, uh, for, 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 for me in the end. And uh, something that like by no means uh, like moves me or spins my head around or, or anything like that. Although I must say, I'm very interested sometimes in her like tiny little moments that really little things, like for example, disembodied teeth with the word help written on, on, on each teeth or like these weird little, her tiny things I think are really, really merit and, and warrant attention. And sometimes for me, those are like the much more interesting things than the figure with these massive dresses made of 
dead animals and, and, and whatnot. <laughs> I, but I, I feel there's like a real burden of history, I, I really tell you here. And hmm. I like, I shingle for me, it's like so much more interesting because it's just so much more adventurous and in terms of like what constitutes a, pa a painting. I mean, really, like really what constitutes a painting. Well, yeah, I think we, we see adventuresome adventure in, in different, uh, through a different ends of the And I telescope. admired very much what you wrote about her. Uh, well, thank you, thank you. I mean, she's a painter I find problematic in the extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no question about that. And, and Stingle is problematic, but Stingle, um, in comparison, it seems to be written in, in, very, in block letters, and she's written in a tiny script. Um, because Stingle seems to be at a very to me, very obvious and well-traversed. Uh, as, as, in fact, Stingle seems as traditional in his way as Heffernan, but Stingle's tradition happens to be a much more compressed and short and recent one, but uh, his work is so steeped in the kind of semiotics of the 60s and 70s and, and looks like it, it, there's hardly anything in the Stingle show that couldn't have been made in the 60s or 70s. Um, whereas Heffernan it seems to me very of, of her moment precisely because she's a virtuoso within a... Um, a ridiculously fussy, um, a, a voluptuous little niche. I mean, she's she's doing something like uh, writing opera buffa. It's as if somebody were writing opera buffa. You'd say, well, this is in a niche. But um, all art is ultimately in a niche. It can be a, 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 an oversized niche in which they get lost, or it can be a tiny niche in which they're cramped. But um, once you once you find your idiom and, and work within your style, you're in a niche. So. Um, I, I think the best art is in a niche, um, but that uh, it does something within that niche that is is universal. Can I off? Can I make a response? <laughs> yes. I mean, you just you just said like once one finds one's individual style, once one finds one's idiom, and what what exactly does that mean? Because actually. Uh, recent art history, at least to me, shows that some of the most interesting and, and adventurous artists have made wild shifts in terms of what they're doing, uh, and, and that continues. Ava yeah. has started out as a painter, right? Mm -hmm. Vito Akanchi was a writer. Uh, and, and, then, and you follow all the transformations of those people. They went through many, many changes, and she seems to me to be working within a really familiar territory to her as an artist, and making small shifts within that very clarified territory. And I would sort of question why can't things develop in other Well, they uh, can and they do, and we, ways, we, we all right? love, a, we love a, a, a polymath or an uomo universale, like Vito Acconci can design his own house, uh, you know, kudos to him. Uh, but <laughs> Vito Acconci is still in a niche, it's the Vito Acconci niche. It's, it's being himself. Being oneself can become a niche. And uh, um, uh, being a polymath, you know, there, there are certain conventions to polymathicity that become niche, as niche-like as, as uh, painting in a kind of Baroque cum Rococo uh, uh, style. Um, I, I think that you, it's all about scale, that the, the, the changes, changing from being a writer to an architect, or changing from uh, the, the, the way in which you treat the figure-ground relationship as heaven has changed in the last couple of shows, can be as uh, seismic in, in its own way. I think it's also interesting that we're not, we didn't talk about Pettibone in terms of you know, the consistency of his um, 
approach, which has been mm. more or less unchanging. The content has changed, and that was what was so striking mm. about this show. I think that the whole discussion about whether or not it's important for an artist to continually break new ground or to be um, true to their passion and have some sort of integrity about the development of their work. It's been going on forever, and I don't think mm. it's um, terribly productive. Some artists work one way, some artists work another. Mm. Um, I do think the comparison with Stingle is really interesting to the extent that both of them are involved in some kind of self-revelation. And I think that Stingle is so much more um, patently, obviously, involved in a kind of very um, self-protective, um, style-conscious positioning. Um, he sort of hides himself behind this veneer of very suave, you know, mm -hmm. hooded eyes, stylish clothes. You know who he is. He's a player. You know, he's part of the circuit. Um, and on the other hand, Julie Heffernan has chosen a completely different self-image, which is, you know, in some ways a parody mm -hmm. of self-revelation. And I, you know, I think there are um, there's a lot of room in both of those positions. And I mm -hmm. think she really seizes that room. Um, I think I absolutely agree with, with Gregory that, that the, the strongest parts of the paintings are what happen when you come in really close and sort mm. of you know, have this sort of queasy-making access to something that feels extremely uncomfortable and privileged and often winds up being sort of terrifying. Mm. And you know, to the extent that both she and Stingle are involved in, in thematics of, say, you know, consumption and remorse, what it's like to live in, you know, a culture of excess or, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there are, there are areas of content that can be explored with both of them. Mm. We don't need to rest exclusively on the level of, of you know, facture and style because they're both obviously pretty good at it. I, I think that um, Heffernan's political uh, insights are much more moving than uh, Pettibon's actually. Uh, Pettibon is, is, is like uh, is, is playing a game of posture for me uh, of, of being this angry adolescent and that um, uh, Heffernan on the contrary actually more in the last show at, uh, at uh, uh, PPOW and the, the present one dealing with those uh, firework displays and apocalyptic cities and, and nuclear explosions but also in, in the way uh, in the whole martial iconography um, the whole masculine feminine thing going on in the iconography um, and also just the, the, actually a comment on the absurdity of abundance and the cruelty of uh, abundance that these I, I found to be really actually moving paintings uh, that, that sent me away to think through issues uh, John you, you were very skeptical of, of her well I, I, just, I just wanted to you know uh, set something out there for a little debate but no. I, I do think that you're, a lot of the qualities you're identifying with uh, Stingle also apply to Heffernan I think people the, the, the aesthetic of both these shows appeal to the audience right now because it deals with the personal and it deals with personal narrative and when you say you know Excess and abundance. I think Stingle's dealing with the same issues. You talk about the weight of history. I think Stingle's dealing with the same issues. He's dealing with them with a kind of levity. But I think that it is personal. And I think when you align Stingle with Gerhard Richter, it's a little bit of a not doing a favor to Stingle because I think that Stingle has more of the personal narrative in his work. And I think that these are both artists who are dealing with similar themes in very different ways. Some of it is a taste response. Um, you know, I don't really appreciate the overworked middle value paintings of Heffernan. I like the excitement and bravura of Stingle. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I think that they're both, both artists are very con 
aware of and making use of uh, the, the, the style and history of their medium. And I, 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 to me, that is not, in, uh, not a sine qua non of good art because I'm ready for anything to happen and perfectly willing to, uh, perfectly sympathetic to people who are just absolutely done with the burdens of history. But uh, um, as somebody, I, I find that, you know, as an artist who's very much part of a, uh, a resurgent mannerism, there's no question about that. I mean, she's virtually almost the classmate of Yuskavich and, and Curran, and, and certainly there's no question that there's some similarities of uh, uh, intent there. Um, but I find the work, and it's very interesting that Nancy brought up a distinction, I find that the whole um, relationship to actual technique to be very, very distinct between, say, Curran and uh, uh, Heffernan. It seems to me um, that hers is not, to the extent that, that his is, um, uh, um, dependent on a sort of debunking of painting and, and of, of the experience, and that it's um, therefore, in a way, more lively. I was not hoping to have the last word, but it seems that uh, there's some smiles of, okay, Cohen, have your heffernan. Um, so I, 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 think, I think we can actually, as we have a couple more shows to look at, which we will look at fairly briefly, panel, uh, let's, let's move ahead. Well, I, panelists, I don't know how you felt, uh, if you shared this view of mine, but I, I, I rather felt that I was um, being treated to the second event, not something that was not the, the main event at Georgina Star, and that sort of raises a whole problem of how artists who've laboured in, rather intensively over making a book or a film or something then get their, um, get their annual exhibition out of it as well. Uh, Georgina Star's one of the, forgive it, stars of the YBA generation in, in Britain, and uh, it's, uh, those of us who follow her work from this side of the pond uh, John, are we are we getting a fair dose of Georgina Starr in the show, or was this a bit like being in the souvenir shop? Uh, well, for me, it was it was a show of completely unexpected response from myself. I went predisposed, thinking, "Oh, a YBA, I'm going to have to look at a video artist." I looked online and thought, "I'm never going to understand this. I won't know how to talk about it." And then you have to find this gallery, Tracy Williams, which I'd always wanted to go to, but I'd never been able to find. So I was in the West Village, and I was looking for the gallery, and I went downstairs, and I went into this room, and there was nobody there. And I, was, and I then met a sequence of people at the gallery who helped me understand what I was looking at. And all of those things would predispose me against something, although I like not being in Chelsea to look at an art show. Uh, but I loved it. It was a show that revealed itself to me very slowly, and in a way that I'm not used to looking at art. Um, and I found it full of surprises, and I found the personality of the show to be very strong and uh, very kind of beguiling. It, I, I kind of underwent a, a transformation uh, through the process of seeing the show and really trying to figure it out. And, and the, the experience, yeah, of, of wearing these long black gloves to look at the book that had, you know, ceremoniously they'd taken the plexiglass off of this vitrine and then you read the book and it's filled with this very kind of uh, clumsy description of this movie that you didn't see um, and it's written in this kind of faux academic style and it's all just beguiling and it's kind of nuttiness uh, so I really came away liking this show Nancy did you like it? 
No, alas, <laughs> no. And I, I didn't get around to the gloves, and I didn't see the movie. And um, so, I, you know, this is one of these sort of progressively, you know, self-fulfilling things. Uh, perhaps I didn't do it justice. But um, I had a very adverse initial reaction, and that was pretty much sustained all the way um, through the two floors of the gallery, which is indeed a very charming place to see work, and I have been um, I have been a sucker for other things there that I've, I've really liked a lot. Um, I shouldn't say that. I, I would have liked them under any any circumstances, I think. But um, so here I, I have to say that I'm I, I, I'm just really I'm baffled. I mean, I, I think this business of assuming the role of a famous person, particularly a famous actress, um, is such well-trod territory. And although she's pretty and although she looks a lot like her mother, not <laughs> necessarily a, you know earth-shattering discovery, you know, and she has gotten people behind her to produce these films and to produce this gorgeous, lavish, you know, leather-bound, gilt stamp book. Um, it... It just didn't. Mm, mm. It didn't. Yes. It, was was there a so what factor hanging over it for you, Gregory? Or Abs- absolutely not. There, um, <laughs> I just wanted to say that, like upstairs, there's the, an Asher B. Duran show here, which is in, uh, uh, upstairs I, here, yes. Right, and and um, so the person, uh, uh, someone who's close to me is, is um, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I've learned a lot from him, and and uh, who was an influence on Durand. And in his essay, The Poet, one of the first great radical art-making statements in America, he has a great thing, a great statement that just goes, it is not meters that makes a poem, but a meter-making argument, a thought so passionate and alive. So you don't just inherit the meters, you know, your thought, your process can change the whole poem or the whole artwork. And I think that she, that Georgina Starr is really engaged in, in, my, in my terms, Emersonian terms, a meter-making argument. The, the show is so out there with, with this remaking of a silent film uh, to uh, accompaniment, you know, which I, I saw the film but not the, not the live performance, with photographs, with a sculpture, a smash sculpture, com- conflating things with her mother, like it's just so, it's so like crazily adventurous and crazily eccentric, and for me, utter, utterly um, convincing. It's also, it's not that it's like a famous actress, it's like a one, like Once someone who actress. vanished more or less from consciousness altogether, Theda, Theda Barra. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, the, 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 those things are weird. And also the movie, I don't know if everyone saw the, the film, but it's really funny. I mean, it's like, it's really funny when she goes into this whole, like, cat burglar mode, you know, that I, I just think it's so... Verma Thep, sort of. Yeah, it's like really well-made and very eccentric. I mean, she's just totally on her own orbit with, with this work, and that's something that I um, cherish. Well... Um, I, I feel a little like Nancy that I didn't get the main event there, but I must say, uh, uh, Gregory would be pleased to know that I did come away from that exhibition dying to see the film. I, I wanted to know what was behind it, and I do. I, I did also pick up on this um, this fastidiousness with which various details were taken care of, this immersion in uh, a character, and I thought the video downstairs was powerful and effective. I, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a real sucker for. Um, Actress obsession. I, I, so I, it's, it's a genre that I have a certain personal 
positive bias towards. It's interesting the show came just after uh, Duncan Hanna's exhibition Uptown closed, in which once again he's visiting his obsession with the forgotten 1940s noir actress uh, uh, Nova Pilbeam. So that um, <laughs> there's something about current artists' obsessions with uh, forgotten beauties and uh, uh, that uh, might be a, a thread to, for some uh, art historian to follow. We'll see. Um, but Let's move on, actually, uh, to a consideration of a different show, uh, Ingrid Kalam at uh, James Cohan. Um, I don't know if we can make any neat segue from uh, star to Kalam, but uh, if so, it might have something to do with uh, taking an unlikely source, in in her case, uh, uh, street graffiti, uh, an interesting... uh, through Pettibon and Stingle, uh, recurring motif in this evening's work, um, and building your language from that unlikely source. Uh, um, Gregory, what did you make of Kalami, and how did you get on with it? Um, To be perfectly frank, uh, I think that she's a very interesting artist and good artist, but I had the feeling uh, about... There's something that she was proceeding on autopilot... For, for this exhibition. Uh, I think that her system that she's developed can now be applied to virtually anything, uh, and whether it's Indianapolis Speedway and uh, at Los Angeles River, I mean, now these will always, they will always generate handsome abstractions that are interesting, uh, and, but I just had the feeling that something is really medium level uh, uh, about this about this exhibition. And then I uh, and just not especially compelling. Although I think that she's done extremely compelling works. And one other thing I would say is the Los Angeles River happens to be like a very important place to me, even though I'm an East Coast guy. I spent some time there with another artist, Charles Long, who's working intensely at that river. And it's a, uh, it's a remarkable place, uh, really is, where nature and, and uh, urban culture and home meet like with great trouble, uh, where the, the the utopian construction of the Army Corps of Engineers meets dystopic breakdowns of of L.A. Now homeless people abound there. Nature lovers are going there. And the weird thing to me about Ingrid Calame's uh, Los Angeles River works is how it just sheds for me that whole milieu with her whole mark making interpretive. Thing. It just sheds the whole context, and I think that's um, It too comes bad. out of the meat grinder as polite abstraction. Yeah, more or less, I mm-hmm. would say, more or less. Although she, but some of her abstractions mm-hmm. in the past have been far mm-hmm. less polite, I would say. Yes. John, did, did you feel that her uh, source imagery energized the final work, or was it a slightly tendentious or academic connection? Well, maybe we should describe it just a little bit. Yes. She's, a, she's a stain gatherer, uh, so she traces the outside of stains and then those become templates uh, that she uses and she paints very flat color. They're in second series of drawings where you just see the outlines in uh, different chromatic colors. So I think what she's doing clearly is taking this legacy of the pre-association of gestural abstraction and freely co-opting it and doing so in a way that has a real authority because of this hard-edged language where you have chromatic color crisply delineated against other chromatic color. It's a lot like Lisa Reuter to me, uh, but without the representational imagery. It's borrowing from abstraction in the same way that Lisa Reuter adapts a photographic image. Um, I've, in the past, thought that because of the sort of 
accident-driven gestalt of her work that there's some really terrific visual results. Um, but I do feel that uh, it's just another artist who's taking you know, the hard-won territory of abstraction and kind of uh, bastardizing it to sort of uh, cheapen terms um, and coming out with something that's really visually striking. Uh, I'm ambivalent about it for that reason because I don't know how to feel about it. I don't know um, if it's just kind of a uh, good fortune, you know, that she's able to produce these images uh, in this manner. Um, and I don't really know how they relate to abstract painting. Yes. I, I, I yes, Nancy. <laughs> uh, I, I, if, if I also give my response, which is rather similar to the previous two, and your response is the same, we're going to end on a sour, sad note, but then we are if, <laughs> if I have to. So, um, well, yeah. <laughs> Nancy, tell us what we're missing. That leaves me in a very awkward position because that was exactly my line. I'd, um, yeah, I I'd, I'd, I'd completely agree um, with Gregory yes. began. Um, you know, my, my feeling when I saw this show was, um, you know, Solowit produced work that was based on formulas that was executed by others for 40 years, and there was so much visual um, depth there and so much passion and just so much to look at. And although I think she's a very talented artist, um, I just have to agree that, that the formula... Um, is not wasn't serving her that well in this case. I, I also um, want to say that I have a little bit of a kind of um, allergy to work that requires information extraneous to what you're looking at to legitimate it or to provide a, a degree of information that you're not getting if it's visual work. I mean, if we're looking at conceptual work, that's a different thing. But if, if we're looking at work that's essentially formalist work, and, the, and it is... Um, well, that's a very interesting that. distinction because uh, the whole where conceptualism or neo-conceptualism is now is invariably it's, it is conceptual work that is nice to look at. It's pretty. I mean, isn't that what the neo-conceptualism is? It's, it's, it, it, it goes back to the uh, intellect. It has sort of the intellectual procedures of, of conceptual art of the 60s and 70s, but uh, as some kind of compensation factor or, or sop to uh, the market or to the viewer actually gives you something pleasant to look at. So, so there seems to be a great deal of um, abstract art that um, takes its um, charge from um, the systems that it exploits. I'm thinking of, say, Stephen Charles or um, that artist uh, whose first name escapes me, Zeller, who, who makes works based on uh, timelines of earthquakes and disasters. And uh, there was a whole show at Marlborough Chelsea about five years ago of, uh, curated by uh, Maurice uh, Tuckman of, of artists who included Charles and Zeller and others, all of whom were doing exa exactly what we're describing here with, with Ingrid Kalame, which is um, uh, producing uh, visually quite either pleasant or interesting-looking work um, Danica Phelps will be somebody else, I think, in similar territory, that you, that, um, you get a, a pretty visual result, and then you're told that the, the, the journey there was um, uh, systems management. And well, so that and gives also, you the conceptual and the formal at once. Sorry. So uh, a, a little bit formulaic to, to give you the conceptual and the formal at once, but don't you think that's what a lot of neoconceptual art is doing? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you know, another example would be um, Spencer Finch, who um, also uses unpredictable, um, interesting arrays of information uh, to produce work that is visually very engaging. Peter Halley has been doing this since the 80s. And you know, so there are occasions where there is a really interesting friction that takes place between unexpected um, assemblages of you know, sort of data, information, drawing information in from unlikely mismatched sources, and then generating something that you wouldn't predict. Um, so it's it, it's not you know it's not the problem per se of using the sort of um, unlikely engine to produce this you know mm-hmm. satisfying visual mm-hmm. response. But I, I, I think to some I, extent we're all agreeing. Well, I think there's another aspect as well, which is that this generation of artists are attaching this sort of user friendly narrative to works that. In previous generations, the visual challenge was left without the narrative attached to it. So when I showed pictures of the Stingle styrofoam pieces in my class, to compare and contrast, I showed Carl Andre firebricks. Well, the Andre work created outrage when it was shown. The Stingle work is not creating outrage. As Gregory said, we can think of an alpine snowscape. There are all kinds of nice things you can attach to it. And similarly, a Pollock painting can still outrage people today so many years later if you see somebody who's coming to a, 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 a museum as a general audience, they're still outraged by a Pollock. And with Calame, they say, oh, you know, she traced these stains at the Indianapolis Super Speedway. That is charming. And combined it with the L.A. River. Yeah. That's, for me, a, a, a beautiful description of what's fundamentally wrong with, with, with so much neoconceptualism. It's having your cake and eating it. It's, uh, it's having that fallback position so that um, if you're worried about it being too formal, you say, don't worry, it has its conceptual undergraded. And if you're worried that it's too conceptual, you say, well, isn't it pretty? Yeah, but like at the same time, uh, like making works based on, on stains at the New York Stock Exchange or showing these kind of works in a church... Uh, which she's done. I think that th- those things are, uh, that's like very interesting, but there's, there's a, pro- at least it's so, it seems and feels to me, there's a problem that like the breakthrough aesthetic for an artist, when done over and over, too long, mm-hmm. begins to lose a certain sure. urgency and power. By the way, I'd say the same thing about Julie Heffernan. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, 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 and that's what I'm, like, I think... But At certain point, Ingrid Calame should really consider not repeating her basic format, her basic structure, tracing things from one place, combining with traces. Maybe she would just do something entirely different, and I think that that could be uh, something really liberating for this obviously talented artist. But to answer that on Heffernan, I mean, there's a fundamental difference between having a strategy which is... I mean, uh, Calame has a strategy, a process strategy. Uh, Heffernan's uh, quote-unquote process strategy is to describe the world in paint, and that's uh, so so complex and nuanced and endless a possibility that it is not a a, a process uh, strategy. That's actually not entirely fair to Ingrid Calame, because... 
Uh, I think that that was a relatively late decision, this whole idea to combine the Los Angeles River with the Indianapolis Speedway mm. uh, and the Flagstaff area. I mean, that was like all sort of late in the process. I think it was like she went to Indianapolis, she's commissioned to a big work for mm. the Indianapolis Museum and, and the Indianapolis Speedway, yes. and then somehow got the idea to combine this with the LA River. So. Not like a total strategy that she had. Oh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it is, but I mean, the, the, what I'm saying is that uh, what you're suggesting that she does is uh, uh, move on from uh, an aesthetic, a, a, a way of a modus do, operandi, which, is, variation which, is, which is a variation on this. Whereas yeah. um, you just then say, oh, and by the way, Julie Heffernan should stop doing um, variation. Means, well. Um, and just throwing it out as a possibility. Okay, I'm sure she'll listen and, and consider it as a possibility. But she, in in considering it, she should hear an earnest uh, request from me to to believe, as she obviously does believe, that this is a very deep well, and there's plenty more to be drawn from it. In my humble opinion. So let's have some response from the audience on these any of these three shows that we've we've been looking at. Uh, Ingrid Kalami at James Cohan, uh, Georgina Starr at Tracy Williams, uh, or Julie Heffernan at PPOW. And a gentleman has his hand raised here. Is the mic working again? Yes, marvelous. Um, I, I, love it when, I love it when artists make the same piece over and over again. So uh, th th all that critique of moving on, uh, you know, uh, so... I'm happy with fractional changes of nuance within uh, what's a rich uh, vein, but... Um, and, and I didn't dislike uh, Ingrid Kalami's show. I mean, I thought the drawings were more interesting than the, 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 the paintings. I, I um, do think the paintings look like a lot that I've seen... Um, uh, already, but um, uh, if if the strat if the, the modus operandi produces great results, great, go for it. Um, but I, to, to such a great extent, it seems to me that the modus operandi is part of the conceptual underpinning of the work, and and it becomes a problem when it doesn't yield specific formal results for me. I think probably what had even more impact on her is like having this big deal show and having a child five months ago and, and trying to like bring those things together and I think oh, that's probably God. much more difficult than the art market. You know, I mean, those are that's like a pretty ambitious show. You know, when you're a new mother. Well, she's got some new stains to work from then, so uh, <laughs> we can expect some some radical personal departures, uh, which will certainly be self-portraits as well. So, a gentleman, uh, wait for the mic. If you could wait for the mic, that would be great. If you could wait for the mic, that would be great. It's just coming your way. Thank you.
Yes, I remember sculpture. It's the thing you back, uh, knock into when you step back to look at the painting. <laughs> yes. I, I think the question is rhetorical, and we were all ashamed that we haven't really looked at more sculpture. The, the one sculpture, unfortunately, was thrown on the floor by the artist, so <laughs> it wasn't entirely our fault. But we will put more sculpture in the next review panel. Thank you for that question and for the sentiment behind it, which is admirable and well expressed. Behind you, Joe Fight, behind you, Mike. Because they're boring to look at. I don't agree that they're boring to look at at well, all. We all thought they were charming to look at, but not, didn't we? I mean, what's not to like? Well, yeah, no, I, I, I think what's not to like, you know, um, you know, splashy gestural shapes, clearly delineated in, you know, chromatic color, you know. And the drawings, you know, they have a lot of qualities that are pleasing in drawing. No passion. Who needs passion? <laughs> if, if, I mean, I, what I hear in Joe Five's question is that they are boring to look at because they're only pretty and they're not intellectually rigorous. But then, uh, then first generation conceptualism wouldn't have been boring to look at. <laughs> If, if, if you enjoyed looking at something that conveyed a strong idea, regardless of uh, whether it had a sort of formal texture or uh, sensual pleasure to it. But also I think some of these first-generation conceptual artists, they, their, their ideas were so strong that, that the visual results became beautiful to look at because they so transformed the way we saw through their ideology. And, you know, that's the, for me the strength of an artist is that you have this transformative experience where you see something in a way you weren't able to see it before. Um, anybody, perhaps, on, on Julie Heffernan? Who, anyone want to talk about her or, or Georgina Starr? Uh, Mike, if you could wait for the mic, Susan. Um, <laughs> young man. Uh, thank you. No, it's the lady in the front row. Thank you. I really wanted to like the show, and I was very drawn to this. I thought there was a scale problem. Um, there was a real scale problem. The little ones were very attractive. There was something about having that plethora of dead and alive, waiting dresses on such a tiny scale. It seemed more magical. And then the big, the dozen large ones were so formulaic. You know, they were just replaceable. Maybe move the figure over. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Keep the Rococo formula, but move the figure two inches to the left. Okay. Concrete advice from the president of the National Academy. <laughs> we'll go down in history. Okay. Uh, two rows back. Uh, thanks so much. Julie Heffernan, I thought exactly the opposite. I thought the small pieces were as powerful as the scale. 
Any, any more uh, comments, or are we all starving hungry and ready for the autumn evening? I have a, just yeah. a question for everyone. Do you think that the, uh, uh, at the Georgina Star Show, should the film that, that, that a lot of these sculptures are based on, should that have been shown there? Oh, apparently uh, they had trouble converting it from a British beta system to an American system, but they, they're hoping to do so <laughs> and have it for a screening by the end of the uh, run. run. Yeah. Um, because it's much like a, you know, not necessarily comparing artists, but much as Matthew Barney's big production is usually something seen in a cinema. Mm -hmm. That's what this was. It was a cinema with an orchestra, and so hence it really wasn't appropriate to put it into the gallery. But we hope, perhaps, just for the people that didn't make it for the, the one night, to show it at the end. But I, I also like how it's like. Pose purloined letter that you know the central signifier is missing, and all you see are the surrounding <laughs> ephemera. Yeah, that's, a, that's great. That has a virtue, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> panel, National Academy. Thank you very much.